really proclaim that God, I know that it is my sin that sent Jesus to the cross, but it was the love that he had, the love that you have for us that held him there. That he was obedient to death, even death on the cross, because that paid the price that I could not pay. And God, I acknowledge that today that you have no rival, that there is no one equal to you. There will never be anyone who is equal. There was none before you. There will be none after you. And today we proclaim that it is in the name of Jesus that we are saved. It is in the name of Jesus that we have redemption from our sins. It is the name of Jesus that frees us from any and all unrighteousness. And we confess that today. God, we pray today that you would speak to us through the power of your word. We pray today that hearts would be changed, that minds would be open, that we would begin to see that we have no hope apart from Christ. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you have your Bibles, I wanna encourage you to turn to Titus chapter one. Titus chapter one, for those of you who don't know, Titus is a book that oftentimes isn't preached from for most people. Titus is part of what is called the pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles are first and second Timothy and then the book of Titus. And Paul wrote the books of first and second Timothy as well as Titus to those gentlemen, Titus and Timothy, young leaders within the church, young guys who had walked along with Paul, young guys who'd been discipled by Paul, who had seen the worst of the worst in the midst of church. And so here's what I wanna encourage you with because a lot of times people come into church and think, I gotta have my life squared away. I gotta have everything in, in, in order in order to be a part of the church, in order to be in the church, in order to be accepted by Jesus. And what I want you to understand is that Paul, Paul, in the midst of discipling Timothy and Titus, had these gentlemen with them as they were working and serving in the church of Corinth, a church that was bombarded by sexual misconduct, a church that focused on really what it meant to be a person in good standing and they neglected other things, a church that said, hey, we're going to do things our way rather than the biblical way, and in that sense, Paul then writes to Timothy, first and second Timothy, and then Paul writes a letter to Titus, encouraging both of these men in how to lead a church. A matter of fact, I would tell you this to, to, to even begin to understand that Titus is, is one of those three letters, but Titus really was this idea of, hey, I want you to stay on, and he's going to tell Titus, I want you to stay in Crete. And the reason I want you to stay in Crete is because I want you to appoint elders. I want you to appoint leaders, pastoral leaders, who are going to carry on the ministry that I have taught you, who are going to not only carry on the ministry, but also to combat the false teaching. And here's what I want to encourage you in the midst of what's going on. And I believe even in our politically tumultuous times... I want to encourage you this, that there are a lot of people who claim Christianity. There are a lot of people who are claiming things and say things, but in a result or as a result of what they say, they deny Jesus by what they say. And one of the reasons why I bring that up is because of what's going on in our political climate. All right. And the simple fact is this, that if there is any racist bone in your body, you need Jesus. Because racism, there is no race. As a matter of fact, I find it ironic that the people who are racist are the very people who will try and say that maybe they're race, they, they, that, that Jesus in some way condones that. Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was not a white American. I'll even go and say that, all right? And I have no clue how that got blown out of proportion. I have no clue how we missed this bigger picture. I have no clue how we believe that in some way, shape, or form that white supremacy is gonna rise to the cream or, or rise to the top, when in reality, it is a very anti-godly, unbiblical, satanic thing that is rising up. 
And anybody who claims to be a racist or anybody who claims white supremacy in reality denies Jesus and they're chasing after Satan. So I just wanna lay that out there up front, first and foremost, all right? May come across harsh, I could give a crap. I, I think I just said that, sorry. I don't care, okay? I really don't. There are things that are going on that is just, it's just pathetic, it's ridiculous. And the sad thing is, is it, it should show us more and more our need for Jesus in everything that we do, okay? Titus, the book of Titus written by Paul is to confront false teaching. Now, there's no mention of race in here, but I wanna show you how false teaching creeps in, all right? We begin to think and respond in certain ways. I'll even say this, maybe it's not the racism issue, maybe it's music. Like I, I follow people all the time and I've seen things like this. Well, if we just got back to the hymns, then everything would be good. Listen, there's nothing wrong with hymns. Please hear me out. There's nothing wrong with modern music. But to say if we just got back to the hymns, then everything in the church would be fine is wrong. The reality is when the church worships Jesus wholeheartedly in everything, not just in your words and music, in the worship you do day in and day out because the church is not the building, the church is the people. When the church worships Jesus day in and day out in everything I do, then the music doesn't matter. Because the reality is, I love this part, I'm not so sure that there's gonna be instruments in heaven. I'm, I'm, not, I'm just saying, I'm, I'm not saying they're not gonna be. I'm just not so sure there will be. What we do know is that there's gonna be worship. That at the name of Jesus, what we just saying, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So the beauty of Titus is this, that we're going to understand, we're gonna dig in and we're gonna see, you'll see the subtitle of the sermon, uh, the sermon series is Living in Light of God's Grace. In other words, because of the grace of Jesus, I have a way I'm supposed to live. Now, I'm gonna clarify this also with the false teaching because a lot of people think, well, I got Jesus so I can live however I wanna be. That means I can do whatever I want. I don't have any moral standards. I don't have to, I don't have to listen to these things. Matter of fact, the Bible needs to get with today's times. and you, you need to function in the way that we function in today's modern culture when the reality is the Bible is very clear on what we are to do. The problem is oftentimes we don't do it. So Titus chapter one, if you'll stand with me just real quick, there are four simple verses. We're gonna stand as we read. Titus chapter one, uh, and listen to what he says. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our Savior. Now, now Paul says this to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Let's pray. Father, we just pray today, again, that you would speak to us, through your word, that you would change our hearts, that we would have open minds to hear exactly what you have to say, that our hearts would be responsive to your spirit. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may have a seat. Hey, here's one thing I wanna encourage as we start this, as we talked about worship and things like this. First and foremost, I wanna, I wanna brag on our worship team, honestly, um, because the reality is I've been to a lot of churches. Matter of fact, I gotta go to last week, enjoyed my time thoroughly, but I will stand up here and tell you, I don't believe anybody beats our worship team, all right? Yeah, and, and on top of that, this, and, and, and here's, here's the beauty of that, and I, I want you to understand this because a lot of people go, oh, you're giving a big head. No, because anytime they get 
applause or praise. In reality, it should be this, that you are praising God for what God has gifted them to do. A matter of fact, I want you all to know this, that every one of us here in this room is gifted by God to do something. There's this thing called spiritual gifts that God says, when you put your faith and trust in me, I supernaturally give you something to do. A matter of fact, it may be talents and abilities that you've learned along the way. Maybe it's music, maybe it's something else. I, and the reason why I say that is I can tell you point blank, that was me. Because when I felt called to ministry, it was like, there is no way in heck I'm getting up on a stage and talking to people. I hated giving a speech in speech class that was four minutes long. It's like, over my dead body, I'm gonna get up and talk to people. Everybody's like, what are you gonna do in ministry? I have no clue because I don't like teenagers and I don't wanna preach. And they were like, well, that pretty much eliminates everything. <laughs> I was like, well, I'm just being honest, you know? That's the way it was. You know what was funny is God changed my heart. I ended up being a youth pastor for 12 years. And then God, through that, has prepared me to do this. But here's what I wanna dig in. As we get in to understand, in order for our church to be a church that carries out the mission of every believer being a disciple maker, I wanna encourage you with this. And I got to talk to Darren a little bit today about this, but I want you to understand that there are gonna be some things that are gonna change over the next month, month and a half that you're gonna see because our point as a church is to be a church that makes disciples, that make disciples, that make yeah, it's not hard, is it? It's like a repetitive process. As a matter of fact, we're gonna, we're, gonna, we're gonna toy with this, we're gonna play on this idea. The idea is that a lot of people think if I walk through this process at some point, I'm done. When the reality is, is you walk through the process and then guess what you become? You become a guide, you become a disciple, you become a leader. Why? Because now you're gonna take people right back around. I used the, the, the idea of, of Mount Everest, you know, People climb Mount Everest, and in the midst of climbing Mount Everest, what do they have with them? They have guides who lead them up the way. And the guides lead them to the top, to the summit, and they bring them back down, and they turn around, and what do they do? They lead another team up to the summit, and they turn around, and after a while, some of those, guy, those people who have gone up the summit become guides. And the idea is that in our spiritual walk, I'm gonna walk in the process and I'm gonna be developed so I can make disciples. I wanna be a disciple first, but I wanna make disciples second. And everybody, here, listen to me on this part, because here's where the bar is getting raised. If you are a member of the church, the expectation is rising. You can't sit and, and sour. You can't sit in the pew and just soak up everything and then turn into sour milk. You gotta do something. And so we're gonna raise the bar. We're gonna, we're gonna be pushing you to, to get involved, to get connected. But I want you to understand this. Not only are we gonna be focusing on making disciples, we're gonna be focusing on multiplying churches. We're gonna be focusing on replanting churches. We're gonna be focusing on trying to get more and more churches involved and active and making disciples and seeing what's going on. And so here's what I want you to understand why we're going into Titus, because this book, in reality, could be, to a certain extent, an apostolic manual for church planting. Paul is basically telling Titus, hey dude, you're staying at Crete and here's what I want you to do. This is the beginning, this is the process. We're not here just to gather a crowd, but we're here to make disciples. And so this letter is not written, a lot of times people go, well, it's a pastoral letter. Yeah, forgive me, I have a cold. <clears throat> but this letter is not just written for pastors, not just written for church planners, but rather it's for every believer because there's great wisdom and truth for all of us. And while every believer isn't called to pastoral ministry, every believer is called to serve within the body of Christ and everybody is saved to serve for Jesus. 
So when I say this, I say it with the utmost excitement, the utmost passion, but we can't. We are at a point in time within this world, and I believe wholeheartedly that in the next 10 years, that the actual persecution should probably start coming. It's already starting to phase in with what's going on even in our politics. It's starting to go on to say, if you speak out against a certain group, that that's considered a hate crime when it is something that lines up very clear with scripture. What I want you to begin to understand is this. That what I would say is modern day American church to a certain extent is on its way out. And that is gatherings that draw crowds where there's no commitment. So here's, as we dig into Titus, here's what I want to just really begin to understand. I want to ask you this. If I'm to say that Jesus is the important part of my life or the most important part of my life, how does that line up with everything else I do? Because a lot of times we'll say, well, Jesus is the most important part of my life. That means we're compartmentalizing Jesus. Because what we're saying is that there are other parts of her life that matter. When the reality is, based on scripture, Jesus is my life. That everything I do from here on out, the way I work, how I talk to people, what I do, what I say, how I treat people, how I serve people, how I serve within the church, reflects or is revolving around Jesus being my life. That in every way, when Jesus is my life, then he affects everything. So that when I go through the valley, I understand that the valley may be a time of preparation. Why? Because God's leading me to the mountain. That when I go through the valley, I know that I'm not going through the valley alone. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. And it also means that when I'm on the mountaintop, that I give God the praise and glory because he's led me to that position. And so as we dig into this, I want you to follow along with me. We're going to ask or, or basically look at this. When we try to compartmentalize our lives, then I think everything else becomes compartmentalized. Now, for guys, this is even harder because going back to like the marriage conference thing that we've done, guys are box people. We function in boxes. We like everything neat, clean, and clear. So I got my work box. I got my marriage box. I got my kids box. I got my fun box. I got my nothing box that we've talked about in the past. And a lot of times we got, okay, that's my church box. And all of them don't touch when the reality is it should all go hand in hand that my relationship with Jesus affects every bit of everything that I do. So here's the big statement. If you want to write this down, you can write it down. The salvation we receive in Jesus leads to a life of godliness and service to God. The salvation we receive in Jesus Christ leads to a life of godliness and service to God. So here's the question. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for me? Brian, you're, you're talking about this. When, when I have salvation or when I receive salvation from Jesus or in Jesus, that leads to a life of godliness and service to God. Here's what I want you to begin to understand. A lot of people walk in and go, hey, I got my, I got my Jesus thing on. We're good to go, but I'm going to do whatever the heck I want. 
You're not going to tell me what I can and can't do. You're not going to dictate to me what I can and can't do. Matter of fact, I'm not even going to let scripture dictate to me what I can and can't do. And what we end up having is a problem here. What we got was what we'll call fire insurance. But in reality, we missed the big picture of who Jesus is in the first place. Because Jesus said, I didn't come just to give you a portion of me. I came to overtake your life. And so when I talk about this, what does this mean for us? I want you to begin to understand these things. Number one, what does it mean for me? Number one is this, that I am or we are servants of the Lord. First and foremost, listen to what Paul says. Paul, or in, in Titus chapter one, verse one, Paul, a what? A servant of God. As a matter of fact, for some of us, we don't begin to understand this, but the servant word, doulos, played out in Greek is actually the term slave. Paul says, I am no longer just a servant. I am a slave of God. Everything I do, God is my owner. God is my master. God is my leader. Everything I do falls in line with what my owner, master, and leader wants me to do. Paul, a slave of God and apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul calls himself this, and it would literally mean that he is a slave to Jesus. And as servants, we are slaves. Listen to this. We are bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus. First Peter 1, 18 and 19. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. First Corinthians chapter six, starting in verse 19. And I'm gonna read it to you very simply, but I want you, we are no longer our own. We are bought at a price. Do you not know that your body is a temple? the Holy Spirit who is, from, who is in you, whom you have received from God, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. This idea of being a slave or a servant to God is what first and foremost drives Paul to do what he says. Paul is giving this letter to Titus, but he says, listen, here's the precursor. Here's the idea. Here's why I am who I am. Why? Because Paul knows that without Jesus, his life would be a wreck. If you remember who Paul is, Paul was the number one persecutor of the church. Paul is the very one who stood there on the day that Stephen was stoned and he held all the coats and he allowed the other people to stone him. And then as a result of that, after Stephen is dead, Paul begins to go around to the churches and looking for people to arrest. And in the midst of trying to arrest people has a supernatural encounter with Jesus on the road to Emmaus and acknowledges and sees his sinfulness and comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Paul was one of the most violent persecutors of the church ever, and as a result, as a complete change. He goes from persecuting the church to being a slave of Jesus. And what I wanna ask you this is, is, is simply that. Are you a servant of God? Are you a slave to Jesus? Does Jesus dictate everything you do? Does he lead you in the right path? Are you following him down the right path, I should ask? Or are you doing your own thing? We are a servant for the Lord or of the Lord, first and foremost. And listen, being a servant is a humble role. As a matter of fact, if you were to walk in and say, you know, kind of joking around, but if you walked into your kids and say, I am your servant, what would you do? It's kind of like, or, or, or think about this. If, you're, if your husband walked in, ladies, I'm your servant. You'd be like, what the heck's wrong with you, boy? <laughs> Most men I know don't go in to do that to their wife. Wives, what would happen if you did that to your husband? Or let me use it this way. What happened if you walked into work and just said to a coworker, I'm your servant? 
be like, what is wrong with you? But the idea is we are servants of the Lord. When we play this out, when we begin to see what's going on, Paul, a servant of God, he's living out in a certain way. So we're sent. Listen, listen to this. Not only are we servants of the Lord, but we are sent servants. Paul was sent out. We are sent out. We are servants of the Lord, but we are sent servants. We are sent out to those who are lost. We are sent out to those who are in need. We're serving these people. So we are sent servants. Number two is this. We are selected servants. Listen to what he says. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus for the faith of God's elect. Here's the beauty about this. And I'm going to go down a road that I haven't really ever spent a lot of time down. But there's this whole idea of people calling predestination, election, Calvinism, Arminian, blah, 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 blah. And they always say, well, you got to pick. You're either Calvinist or you're Arminian. You're either predestined or you're, you're not elect. All right? But I want to play something out, and I want you to begin to see, and I'm going to use something just to point this out. This is just here in this section, but I wholeheartedly believe this. We are selected servants. God's, or, or Paul's apostleship exists for the faith. Listen to me. This is what he says. For the faith of God's elect. In other words, for the faith here is the human responsibility, that you and I have a responsibility to acknowledge our sinfulness and to repent of our, our, our sinfulness. That's human responsibility, all right? But then he brings up God's elect. That's divine sovereignty. In other words, God knows who's going to accept Christ and who's not. It's not that God has chosen some to, to, to walk in forgiveness and God has in the past created some just to go to hell. It's the fact that God's sovereignty and human responsibility go hand in hand. Matter of fact, I'm going to use this quote. There's a guy named Charles Spurgeon. Some of you may or may not know him. If you don't know him, that's okay. He's an old school pastor, been dead about 200 years. Charles Spurgeon says this, he saves man by grace. And if men perish, they perish justly by their own fault. How, says someone, do you reconcile these two doctrines? My dear brethren, I never reconcile two friends. Never. These two doctrines are friends with one another, for they are both in God's word, and I shall not attempt to reconcile them. Here is the beauty of this. God knows who's going to choose, who's going to put their faith in Jesus Christ, but it's our responsibility to respond by faith, in, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. Very simple, very point blank. I want you to begin to understand that. Now listen, we haven't had any of that issue here. Matter of fact, most people are like, well, what are you, where do you line up? Well, I'm, you know, and they're like, oh, okay. But I get into all kinds of conversations with guys. And I want you to understand that there is a human responsibility, but there is God's sovereignty that we can never begin to understand. And when we understand that God is sovereign, that he's overall, and that we have responsibility, they both go hand in hand. And now we live lives to be sent. Not only are we sent servants, not only are we selected servants, but we are sent selected servants so that we can go and reach those who have never acknowledged Jesus and so we are servants of the Lord. See, salvation from the beginning to the end is the sovereign work of the grace of God, and yet no one will be saved who does not repent and believe. And then listen to this. We are servants of the Lord. We are sanctified servants. We are to move from faith to knowledge, to godliness. Listen to what he says. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. When you come face to face with the truth, with Jesus Christ, when you come into a relationship with Jesus and you can acknowledge the truth, you are now set apart and you can grow from where you are to where you should be. 
And the simple fact is this, that if you are a believer here today, in one year, you should be different. You should be a little more mature. Now, a lot of people go, oh, okay, that's great. Here's the reality. You're never gonna reach full maturity till you're done. You are constantly in a growing process. Remember the guide illustration I used? We're constantly growing. Every, every guide, when they talk about it, Everest changes constantly. Life changes constantly. Everest is a mountain that seems inconquerable, unsurmountable. Life is one of those things that when you go through it by yourself is unconquerable, unsurmountable. And when we begin to understand what's taking place in this walk, when we develop this, we understand that through changes, I'm still gonna have to develop and grow in my walk. We understand that we're not there. So we're sanctified servants and sanctification is just a very simple way to say you are set apart. You are to be different. Why? Because we're in Jesus and now we wanna have an understanding and a knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Now listen to me, that doesn't mean you're gonna be God. It means you're gonna be godly. And what I mean by that is this, that I begin to reflect the characteristics of what it means to follow Jesus. I love those who hate me. I serve those who don't want me to be around. I love my enemy rather than hate my enemy. See, this is one of the things that drives me nuts about the political climate of what's going on. We have turned each other into villains and it's absolutely ridiculous. You're seriously, we're gonna allow politics to make a person unhuman? It's sin. And what we have to begin to understand is that we gotta love those. We have to pray for those. We're to live holy, sanctified, pure lives. Number two is this. What does it mean for us? We said we're servants of the Lord. We said we're sent servants. We're selected. We're sanctified. Number two is this. We are secure in the Lord. Listen to what he says as we, as we follow along, all right? Starting in verse two, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. Play this out and see what he's saying. He's saying, listen, we wanna strive for the knowledge of the truth. We wanna, that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope. What is it? Our faith rests on the hope of eternal life. Our faith rests on the hope that Jesus is who he said he was going to be, that Jesus will come back, that Jesus rose again, that we can walk in life knowing that we're going to face trials and temptations and difficulties and persecution, not on our own, but in the strength of Jesus as we walk along. And so he says, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God who does not lie. Listen, Paul's trying to lay out something very clear here, that God promised eternal life from the beginning that God promised eternal life through Jesus from the beginning, that God promised something that he's gonna see that promise through, that he's gonna carry it out because he doesn't lie. That from the beginning, or that he promised before the beginning of time. So the saving faith of those who belong to God leads to a knowledge of the truth, which will lead to godliness all of which rests upon the hope of eternal life in which God does not lie. So we begin to understand and see that the promise of eternal life entered time at its appointed season. As a matter of fact, the message version of, the, of this section of scripture says, when the time was ripe, he went public with his truth. 
In other words, at just the right time, Jesus was sent. And so Paul's trying to lay this out to Titus. Titus, I want you to understand these key themes. I want you to understand this key thing, that Jesus at the right time, at the appointed time, was cut loose. The time was right, he was released upon the world. The time was right, so God gave Jesus to the world, and he went public with his truth. See, God has placed his eternal plan of salvation in the hands of people like you and like me. We talk about God's sovereignty. We talk about the, 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 uh, the response of man. But I want you to understand that the role of the church, remember what I said, that this is an apostolic church planting manual? The role of the church is to play this out. And listen, I know a lot of people go, we don't need more churches. Yes, we do. 85% of Jackson County alone does not claim to be Christian. Now everybody go, oh, okay, here's what I'm gonna argue even in that sense. Of the 15% who claim to be Christian, how many would classify themselves as what I'll call a disciple who makes disciples? A person who is growing in their relationship with Jesus and making disciples of other people. Because of that 15% who claim Christianity, I would venture to say that I'll bet you 10 bucks, two to 3%, maybe pushing 4% would be what I would call multiplying disciplers. It might be even smaller than that. And so one of the things you're gonna hear over the next couple months, we're gonna be talking about this because our goal, we're, we're gonna make disciples. We're already setting that out. In order to plant churches, in order to replant churches, you have to make disciples. And so that we're gonna raise the bar on discipleship. We're gonna raise the bar on what is required of those who are gonna lead out in ministries and things like that. See, the message we preach is not our word, but his word. The message we preach is not what we think, it's what God says. We preach his word and no other word. We preach his gospel and no other gospel. Number three, and here's what I want you to see. What are we to do or what does that mean for us? We're servants of the Lord, number one. Number two, we're secure in the Lord. We're secure in our eternal life. And number three, we are set apart for the Lord. Listen to what Paul says in verse four. To Titus, my son, in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. See, Titus can be viewed in a certain extent as Paul's hitman, his spiritual Navy SEAL, or maybe Green Beret, or maybe you could say, hey, he was his spiritual, you know, Delta Force type guy, maybe a spiritual Rambo. I don't know, for those of you who grew up with Rambo, all right? But it would be this idea that, that, that Titus is kind of this man who's risen to the top, He's a person that Paul had discipled along with Timothy who's being told to stay in Crete and you're gonna battle for the faith. Not a physical battle, but a spiritual battle. And what we have to begin to understand is that that battle is still taking place, that we have to understand that we share a common faith and like Titus, we have been entrusted to proclaim it faithfully. Listen, to Titus, my true son in our common faith. What is that faith? It's faith in Jesus Christ, faith that Jesus was born a virgin, faith that Jesus was sinless, faith that Jesus went to the cross bearing the weights and sins of the world, faith that Jesus rose again because he said he would rise again, and a faith that Jesus defeated death and offers us life and life more abundant. That's the common faith. When people proclaim that, we have a commonality, and here is the beauty of that. There is nothing in here about race or sexual preference or anything else on that point, is there? It's a common faith. Now, hear me out. Striving for godliness plays out wholeheartedly in how I respond in my life day in and day out. 
but my common faith is built on Jesus and that the fact that Jesus is who he said he is and would do what he said he would do. So we're to share a common faith just like what Titus and Paul shared. Number two, listen, here's the beauty, to Titus my true, what's he's call him? Son. Here's the great thing about when you are in a relationship with Jesus. When you enter into a relationship with Jesus, you become part of this thing called God's family. And a lot of people are like, oh my gosh, here we go, the family deal. My family's so jacked up, or my family's this, my family's that. Listen to me. When you enter into God's family, you begin to understand what takes place. We are his temple. We are a building. We are a body. We are his bread. But we are first and foremost family. When we receive Jesus as Savior, we receive God as our Father. And when we have God as our father, we can begin to understand that maybe in the midst of a broken relationship with our dad, maybe no dad, maybe a a, a terrible dad, I have no clue, that we can understand that God our father will always look out for us, will always care for us, will always take care of us. He will discipline us just like a dad is supposed to do. So that when I'm out of line and my life doesn't line up with scripture, guess who's gonna discipline me? Guess who's gonna give me a firm kick in the pants? This doesn't let you off the hook to say, I can do whatever I want to do. There's no consequences. As a matter of fact, I believe that Jesus and and God allows things to happen in our lives because of decisions we make, because we know we've gone against what God has set up in the first place. There are consequences for everything that we do. And a lot of times people go, I don't want any consequences, so I'll turn to Jesus. Uh Uh, Firm reality here. If you turn to Jesus so there's no consequences, you might as well walk out the door because you're going to get your butt kicked. Because here's what's going to happen. When somebody says something to you and you feel like popping off and letting them know, hey, I'll put you in your place, buddy. And you walk out the door after you put that person in your place thinking, man, I'm pretty good. And the Holy Spirit goes, dunk, 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 dunk. Hey, you moron, you had a chance to speak love and life to this person. You treated them like trash. How responsible was that of you? And guess who kicks you in the butt? Or maybe guess who takes the proverbial belt off and gives your butt a whooping? The Holy Spirit, because he's correcting you. He's rebuking you. He's training you so that you can live a righteous life, not an unrighteous life. See, because we are a family, we are loved. And flowing from that love is God's grace. The only way I can love an enemy is because of God's grace. The only way I can love those who hate me is because of God's grace. See, God's unmerited favor gets us into the family, but when we're in the family, God's peace is what we get to enjoy with the family. Here's one of those things that I oftentimes look at, and I have to be honest. Growing up in the way I grew up in Christianity, the way I certain grew up in, in our church, all right, Peace was not one of those things that was evident in the life of the church. <laughs> Let me just be honest with you. And some of you maybe who were here years ago, I don't know, maybe would say, yeah, there was not much peace. When you're a part of God's family, you learn to set aside your preferences and your desires, and you learn that our common faith brings us together because we're a part of the family, and that we have one goal, one mission, one desire. That's to see more and more people become disciples. More and more people come to faith in Jesus Christ. More and more people grow in the grace and the knowledge to leave the life they've lived and to walk in godliness. That's the beauty of what Paul is laying out here to Titus. 
And so here's how I wanna wrap up. I just very simply wanna do this. We all enjoy, or we enjoy all of this because we share a common faith, because we're part of God's family. And what I wanna invite you to is this. Maybe you're a person who say, I've never done that. I've never put my faith and trust in Jesus. You know, I'm, I'm still kind of kicking the tires on this whole Christianity thing, but I want you to understand this, that when you are a part of God's family, it is not the expectation that you're gonna be perfect overnight. The expectation is that we get to walk with each other as we grow that we get to help each other out along the way, that we get to strengthen and equip each other as we're equipped on our own, that we can grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, that we can learn to love others who hate us. We can learn to love our enemies. We can learn to serve those who don't want us to serve them. And I have no doubt over the next couple years, over even what's gonna be currently going on, that we can serve people we disagree with. Listen, grace inspires godliness and salvation inspires me to service. And we aren't called to live compartmentalized, compartmentalized lives, but rather to live lives that lead to godliness and service. So if you hear anything, I want you to remember this, that the salvation we receive in Jesus leads us to a life of godliness and service to God. That in everything we do, we would offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Why? Because that's our spiritual act of worship. And so maybe today you'd say, I've never put my faith and trust in Jesus. I'm asking you today to do that. I know God's sovereign. I know what God, God, God knows. I know that he's overall in charge of everything. He is all powerful. He is all knowing. He is omniscient. He's, he's got all of those things going. But I stand up here today to tell you that I know that without Jesus, my life would be a wreck. That as we sang the words, what a beautiful name it is, that I realized that it was my sin that put Jesus on the cross. Not just the sins of everybody else because all of a sudden I'm good. It was my sin that put Jesus on the cross, but it was the love of God that held him there. That in the midst of my sin, Jesus still died. That in the midst of my sin, he promised that I could experience life and life more abundantly. And what I'm standing up here today to say is this, that I invite you to experience that life to understand and experience what it means to follow Jesus day in and day out. And there's a very simple thing that you have to do. It's your responsibility. And I believe wholeheartedly the spirit begins to poke on your heart. Hey, this is you. You need to confess that you're a sinner. The Bible says that if you confess that you're a sinner, that God is faithful and just and will forgive us of all of those unrighteousness things. But when we understand this, that if we confess, we repent, that we've acknowledged our sin and we believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose again, we would be saved. That's the very beginning of the book of Titus. It's the foundation upon which everything else is written. It's the foundation upon which every church should be built. And so the simple invitation is that. Will you believe? Will you confess and believe? Let's pray.
God, in order for our church to multiply, in order for us to see more and more disciples made, in order for people to change, in order to love others the way you want us to love them, we know that we have to have a relationship with you first and foremost. And so God, today I pray that maybe there are some who are good at playing church. Maybe they've come in, they'd say, hey, I'm, I'm really good at this part, but they're struggling. God, we know that you wanna use them right where they're at. Even in the midst of all the difficulties, the struggles, the problems they have gone through, we know that they have gone through them for a reason. Sometimes it's our own choices that have led us into those circumstances and situations. But God, we also know that you wanna use everything that maybe is bad and everything that is good so that you can get us where you want us, so that we can use the story of our life to communicate the goodness and grace of God. So we pray today that you would have your way, that if there's someone here who's never put their faith and trust in Jesus, that they would just simply confess that right where they're at. They would let us know and that you would have your way. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.